I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Back in 2019, I heard about this new book called Wilding, and it was all over the place. Newspaper articles were talking about it, friends were talking about it, and reading it really changed my view of the world. And it's inspiring to see how it captures a lot of other people's imagination too. But something that surprised me is seeing it translated to gardening over the past couple of years. When I heard about rewilding, I was never sure what role it could play in horticulture, how it could fit with gardening. It seemed like something that maybe happened on a big scale. You know, how do you translate something that is to do with animals and ecosystems into a very domestic setting where you don't have the space and you don't have the biodiversity? But as time has gone on, though, I think my view has shifted and I think it's really heartening to see gardeners getting into a genuinely wilder mindset and allowing natural processes to unfold in the gardens, but still caring for their gardens, still looking after the land. And that's the main focus of today's show. We'll be looking at specific ways we can rewild our gardens. We're focusing on small spaces that don't have anywhere near the room for herds of free-roaming animals to manage the landscape and create dynamic habitats. It's all about how we make do with what we've got. So joining me today is Isabella Tree, an author and rewilding expert. And she's gonna be discussing her own experiences rewilding her land and sharing her tips for getting into a wilder mindset. We're then shifting gears a bit and we're turning away from specific practices to look at some of the fauna that's pivotal to our rewilded habitats. We'll be visiting RHS Garden Wisley to hear the curious case of the Roman snail colony there. And we'll chat with Lloyd of the Flies creator Matt Walker and RHS entomologist Andy Salisbury about getting the whole family invested in creepy crawlies. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. So today we're talking rewilding and more specifically how you can rewild a small space. And we have Isabella Tree, one of the foremost experts on the topic, here to share her wisdom. Izzy's the author of the book Wilding, which came out in 2019, and it's recently been updated and expanded into a fantastic tome that she's written with her husband Charlie Burrell called The Book of Wilding. Izzy's journey all started when she and her husband decided to rewild the Nep estate back at the turn of the century and it's been a whirlwind ever since. Izzy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I have to say I loved wilding. It really gave me this kind of amazing bit of hope at quite a dark time in my life. And just for people who haven't read the book, it's a story about bringing nature back into a very nature-deprived area. And we're so surrounded by all of these stories about how nature's in decline and how we have biodiversity crises. 
So reading this book gave me this absolute ray of hope and I'm so glad I bought it. And just to talk to you now is a fantastic thing, so thank you. But tell us a story. Give us a brief intro into your own introduction to rewilding and how and why you decided to rewild your own estate, NEP, in West Sussex. Well, Charlie, my husband, inherited this estate. It's 3,500 acres from his grandparents in the 1980s. And we fully expected to be farming for the rest of our lives. It had been intensive arable and dairy farming since um, World War II. The problem with our land, though, it's very marginal land. We sit on about 320 metres of clay. And that is an absolute pig to farm. It means that for sometimes for six months of the year, if it's a really wet winter, we can't get heavy machinery onto the land. You can't sow spring crops. You just can't be competitive with lovely, loamy agricultural soils elsewhere. It took us 17 years to realise that. And by then, we clocked up a one and a half million pound overdraft. And so the writing really was on the wall by 1999. And Charlie made the big decision, the brave decision, I think, to stop farming altogether. It just was not going anywhere for us. We could only see things getting worse and get us getting entrenched. So once we had cleared our debts and actually stopped farming, sold our dairy herds, sold the farm machinery, sold milk quota, thankfully at a very high price at the time before it dropped, we had a clean slate and we had that ability, that creative, imaginative space to think very differently about what we could do with our land. And just as we were kind of looking at the options, we came across this amazing Dutch ecologist called Franz Vera, whose book Grazing Ecology and Forest History had just been translated into English. And his ideas about how free-roaming animals, large herds of these animals that would have been here in Europe before human impact, manage the landscape and work in conjunction with vegetation, how they actually create dynamic, complex habitats, was really exciting for us. And we thought perhaps we could use free-roaming animals on our very depleted land in Sussex and see if these animals could help bring back biodiversity could help bring nature back. So that was really the idea behind it. We had no expectations other than hopefully increasing biodiversity a little bit. But what's happened within 20 years has been beyond the bounds of any, any imagination. Even ecologists who've been watching this project from the start have been blown away by the amount of life, the sheer biomass of living things but also the rarity of species that have found us, nightingales, turtle doves, purple emperor butterflies. We've got peregrine falcons nesting in a tree. Last year, we found the large tortoiseshell butterfly, which was supposed to be extinct in Britain, but, but is now breeding at net. It's, it's that hope that nature can rebound in a very short space of time if you do it the right way and you, you let it have the space and the time to, to evolve that I think has created you know, a message of hope for so many people who visited NET, but also who've read the book. And you also mentioned in your second book about the idea of keystone species and perhaps that gardeners could be a keystone species. So how can humans help to mimic some of these natural processes? Well, I think it's, it's really interesting. And I think the way we look at rewilding really is on a spectrum. So at the wildest end, you've got Yellowstone National Park, you've got the kind of wilderness areas of the world where you don't need human intervention. You've got apex predators, a fully functioning ecosystem. And then you get down to kind of rewilding hotspots like NEP, 
where you haven't got the space or the availability of apex predators, but you can use herds of free-roaming animals to drive the system. So they're creating a fantastic mosaic of habitats without human intervention at all. The only intervention we do here is to control the numbers of animals so they don't grow to such huge populations that they're taking out all that wonderful vegetation complexity. So that's our main intervention, is us being the proxy for the apex predator. When you get down to smaller areas, you know, be it below 100 acres, say, where you can't have free-roaming animals all year round, you then start having to intervene and, and mimic those processes more yourself, doing coppicing, for example, or creating ponds, or you know, thinking like a beaver and doing damming streams and that kind of thing. And when you get to a garden, Contrary to what most people think, a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, I'm rewilding re my garden because I'm not doing anything. It's not about just letting go of your garden because inevitably what would happen is you would get trees seeding themselves and eventually they would grow up and cancel out all the light and your biodiversity, certainly your species flora breadth would disappear altogether. So it's actually about more intervention, but just thinking like a herbivore, thinking, that when you're pruning your roses, what are you doing actually? You're being a herbivore and the rose is responding by bifurcating and throwing out more thorns and throwing out more flowers because it thinks it's being eaten and this is its last chance to bloom. And interestingly, there's a study that if you actually anointed the bits of the rose bush where you've cut with your secateurs with herbivore saliva, the enzymes in the saliva send a message, a chemical message to the plant, and you'll get even more roses. So it's really thinking in large landscape scale processes and applying them to your garden. So, for example, a, a wildlife friendly gardener might create a pond, but that might be quite a conventional pond. It might be ornamental, sort of round shape with a similar depth the whole way around. You might be mowing right up to the edges. It would be great for some wildlife, and it's obviously a positive step to take. But if you're thinking with a rewilding mindset, you'd create a pond which has different depths, a very deep part, some shallow bits that might even dry out completely in the summer. You would think like a beaver and you'd chuck in some dead wood because that would rot down, create some algae that could feed a kind of nursery for small fry, fish, and aquatic insects. Then you might think like a water buffalo. So you would think about trampling around the margins where you could create you know, little pockets and niches where amphibians, frogs, toads could spawn, where you can create little hollows for receiving the aquatic plants that come in perhaps on the feet of, of aquatic birds that would be visiting your pond. So it's really thinking about processes and how you can make the greatest kind of diversity of habitat within a small space that can benefit the most number of species. I think that's that's a really important point, isn't it? You know, that complexity can really drive biodiversity. And I think you make an interesting point about, for example, the water levels in ponds changing because, you know, as gardeners, we're quite conditioned to think that everything should stay the same. You know, we should have topiary that's exactly the same size and a pond that's this deep. The water level is here and it must always remain the same. So how do you think we can reconcile this need for complexity with our desire for control? It's really interesting because I think it is is—it is all about allowing these processes to play out. So, you know, if you're growing veg, you kind of panic if you suddenly see, you know, cabbage, white butterfly, caterpillars everywhere. 
And you, you might reach for, you know, the pesticide or you might be picking them off yourself or trying to protect those cabbages. But in a rewilding mindset, you would recognize that actually if there is a, a boom of any population of insects, sooner or later predators will come in to find them or some sort of pathogen will wipe them out or certainly reduce them significantly. So in a rewilded garden, you might think about the kind of plants that would encourage the natural predators of these so-called pests, you know, the kind of things that would actually predate on your caterpillars. You would certainly, perhaps one summer, when you saw a pest come in, say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice most of this crop this year in the anticipation that in the next couple of years, nature will catch up and find the predators that will work the system out for itself. So it's also about being patient and sitting in the back seat and, and trusting nature to find the solutions. But it is also, I think, about being messier. There are definitely interventions one needs to do in a kind of rewilded garden. You don't want the thugs to come in and, you know, the bindweed to suddenly take over the entire area. So you can act as the proxy herbivore, selectively grazing that out to an acceptable level. But equally, it's, it's about being welcoming to wildflowers. Why are we so, so desperately critical of some of our most beautiful wildflowers? You know, fumitory, scarlet pimpernel, dandelions, buttercups. As long as they're not completely dominating the mix and you can establish other plants to compete with them, then they can be part of an incredibly diverse mix that is fantastic for wildlife. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable point because, you know, when I studied horticulture, I graduated nearly 20 years ago, my degree was very much about how do you control this? How do you kill this? How do you manage this? I felt like gardening was a bit of a fight. And I think that some older gardeners and perhaps some people in the gardening media are still of that mindset. And how would you respond to some of their criticisms of rewilding gardens? We're having a very enjoyable run-in at the moment with Monty Don and Alan Titchmarsh. And I think a lot of it is about the confusion of the word rewilding and what does it actually mean. I think once, you know, the great and the good, the celebrity gardeners of the world understand that rewilding isn't about just letting go, it demands almost as much intervention as a normal garden. It's just thinking differently. Then I think they become more accepting of it. And obviously so many of these gardeners are gardening with wildlife in mind too. We're just saying that you can go one step beyond the conventional nature-friendly garden if you accept a sort of rewilding mindset, something that is going to put nature a bit more at the forefront. You're still going to be the one tweaking the, the knobs, as it were, deciding your limits of acceptable change. You know, and gardens, after all, are places where we love to sit and enjoy ourselves. We might need a space of lawn for our children or our grandchildren to play ball games on, you certainly don't want thistles growing in a lawn like that if they've got little bare feet. But there's ways of managing a garden that can make it much, much wilder and much more hospitable for wildlife. We've got to remember that the planet is on fire. Every single one of us has to do everything we possibly can. And gardeners are in a perfect position to help with the biodiversity and the climate crisis. We've got more garden space than we have nature reserves. Just think if every garden kind of rewilded their lawn or had a wildflower lawn, if they created space, messy spaces for thistles and brambles in a corner where a hedgehog could hide or could have some thorny hedge as a boundary for nesting birds. I mean, that is enormous. 
for the impact it could have on biodiversity. So, Izzy, we had you on the show 18 months ago, talking about Wilding, your first book. And it's great to have you back again talking about your second, The Book of Wilding. Where does The Book of Wilding take us? It's really in response to the amazing sort of feedback we've had from people visiting NEP and reading the book who are inspired by this idea that nature can bounce back if you let it. And I think that's really galvanising. I think, you know, you can feel so kind of crushed by the enormity of the crisis that's facing us. And what can an individual do? Most of us would put our heads in the sand. But I think seeing a project like NEP and seeing how rewilding rebounds, how nature rebounds if you let it, it's very galvanising and people feel moved and empowered to do something on their own patch. So this book is really in response to all those questions we get asked. How do I rewild my orchard, my graveyard, my cemetery? What can I do in my back garden? What can I do in my window box that will help nature? So it's all about how you can rewild big and small. There is no too small. And how to think as well about connection, how that window box, if you can ensure that your your roadside verges are treated as wildflower meadows, if you've got trees in your street, if you've got neighbours that have window boxes too, suddenly you're part of a really significant stepping stone system for wildlife. So it's really about rewilding across the whole spectrum from tens of thousands of acres to a tiny patch of soil and how we can all do our bit. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real privilege and a pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We've included a link to the Book of Wilding in our show notes. My conversation with Izzy was much longer than the cut you just heard. And because I was so enthralled by what she shared, I wanted to offer a longer edit for anyone who's interested in finding out more about rewilding. You can listen to the full interview on the RHS The Garden app. I like this idea of rewilding in terms of allowing natural processes to happen in your garden rather than just buying more stuff. Because I think as wildlife gardeners, we can often be tempted to buy you know, a blue tip box, a sparrow box, a insect hotel, a this or that and the other. And these things, they do work and they're great. But quite often, maybe allowing ivy to grow in your tree. You know, the ivy can quite often seed there. I've got ivy growing up my fence that I didn't plant. And just allowing those things that want to be there to create these habitats. Now, ivy is an amazing wildlife plant. You know, it offers fantastic flowers for pollinators in the autumn. It offers safe dry habitats in amongst its foliage for things to nest in. So I think that's just one example of stepping back a little bit and allowing habitats to create themselves. One of the key principles of rewilding is something that we all know, but something that we don't always appreciate, that actually plants need animals just as much as animals need plants. And so for the remainder of today's show, we thought it'd be fun to share the love for some of our local fauna. Last autumn, you may have heard that there were plans to start revamping the glasshouse borders at RHS Garden Wisley with renowned Dutch designer Peer Udolf. And now, almost a year later, looks like nothing's happened. But there's a very specific reason for this, and it has to do with Roman snails. So I'm Imogen Cavadino, and I'm an entomologist here at the RHS. 
and I'm Peter Goodchild, I'm the Herbaceous Ornamental Team Leader. Over the last four years we've been organising to do a redesign of the borders which run from the bottom of the glasshouse landscape up to the viewing mount. So if you know Wisley, it's kind of like the iconic view of the glasshouse. We wanted to redesign them so that you get a true feel of a peat Aldorf landscape. So we'll be starting this in September, the redesign. We wanted to start it last year, but after consulting with the plant health team and the entomology team, it was discussed about the snails. And we, we, we always knew that they were there. We had seen them in their ones and twos each year, not really kind of understanding the importance of them and kind of just, you know, working around them. They don't really harm the plants. We kind of just lived with them and, you know, it was quite an interesting thing to have in the, in the borders, but we didn't think it would become a, such a, a talking point. But after discussing and it being flagged up that the Roman snail was living on the borders as such, we invited the entomology team over to kind of have a look at them and actually identify them to make sure that they were what we thought they were and looked at how long we would need to do this survey for and to do a proper survey of the area to make sure that we're one collecting and moving them responsibly and making sure that we're, we're collecting as many as we can to make sure that we're not leaving any behind when we start renovating the area. We were allowing six months or so to do a full survey of the landscape, so from April as they start to emerge from the ground up until the point we will start removing the, the plants. The reason why this matters is they're actually protected under the Schedule 5 of the Wildlife and Countryside Act. So it's an offence to intentionally kill, injure or take, which includes picking up and moving one of the snails without a licence. It's a really surprising find though, because normally you only really find Roman snails on loose calcium-rich soils, which we don't generally have at Wisley. It's mainly sandy soil, which Traditionally, they say Roman snails don't occur on sandy soil, so we really weren't expecting them. They're actually quite a big snail as well. They reach up to five centimetres, so they should, in theory, be quite hard to overlook, but they actually are only active above the soil surface between sort of May and August time. Outside of that time of year, they're actually buried in the soil itself, so they can be very difficult to detect, which is why you have to keep carrying out surveys for a whole season, because only a very small proportion of the population will actually be active above the soil surface at a time. They are a food source for various predators, so we know things like badgers will use them in their diet. So they probably have quite a strong part in the natural ecosystem that's just not well explored. So it's difficult to say what function they actually have. But like anything, I think if you lose a species, it's always a sad thing. We had a walk around on the site with a specialist who trained us so that we had a licence and then in that process we discussed various different sites of relocation. We obviously don't want to move them too far. As I said, they don't do any harm in having them in the landscape, so you know, we're happy for them to be there. So you know, if they move back into the site once we've redeveloped, you know, we've renovated their home and they, they can move back in. So what we've done is select a site that is very much the same as the conditions that they've got now but the main thing is that the area is protected from the general public so if you've ever been to Wisley you'll know that there's quite a large footfall and especially up at the viewing mount so you know we want to make sure that these snails aren't going to get disturbed. 
one can look out for them. <laughs> it's kind of an extra eye, and then we can come and collect them if they see them. But we want people to understand that you know we are looking out for the wildlife here at Wisley, and you know we're doing everything that we can to you know ensure that they have the best possible kind of chance at surviving, and we're not just kind of ignorantly kind of removing them. So I think the the most important thing for gardeners at home is to know that if you live in southern Britain and you have calcium-rich soil, there is potential that you might have the snail in your garden. Um, it's not that common to find them in gardens, but I've certainly had photos sent to me by friends finding them in their gardens. So, you know, just be a bit aware that these things are out there and they do need our love and protection. And yeah, hopefully it'll get gardeners thinking about snails as not just something challenging and difficult to have in your garden, but also something that can be quite cute and nice <laughs> as well. Thanks there to Peter Goodchild and Imogen Cavadino. The Pier Udolf redesign of the Glasshouse border will begin this winter and the renovated landscape is set to open up next summer, so stay tuned for updates. At the moment, Wisley doesn't just abound with snails, there's creepy crawlies of all sorts. And recently, if you've been to any of the RHS gardens, you'll have seen statues of various insects, ones of a housefly, a woodlouse, a butterfly and more, stranded throughout the garden. But these aren't just ordinary bugs. It's Lloyd and his ragtag group of friends, lost on their way to the Grand Bug and Pest Hotel. For our final story of the day, director Matt Walker and RHS entomologist Andy Salisbury are here to chat with us about the collaboration between the RHS and Ardman Animations. You might know Ardman Animations from Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep, and they've worked with us to bring Lloyd of the Flies to all of our gardens. Hello, I'm Matthew Walker, and I'm a writer and director at Ardman. I'm the creator and director of Lloyd of the Flies. Hi, I'm Andy Salisbury, I'm, I'm an entomologist, but I'm also head of the plant health department here at RHS Garden, Wisley. Lloyd of the Flies is a, um, a new animated comedy series from Ardman that follows the misadventures of Lloyd B. Fly, who's a house fly. He lives in a rotting apple in a compost bin with his family, his little sister PB and his 224 younger maggot siblings. It's all set in sort of domestic environments and just getting up to mischief and Lloyd always making problems worse for himself. Yeah, just a funny series that celebrates the insect world. In Lloyd of the Flies, he doesn't really go outdoors much. He's a very much an indoor insect, but a special treat. They've taken a holiday to the RHS Gardens to visit the um, Grand Bug and Pest Hotel, which is a new business venture of Roger the Moth, who runs the newsstand where Lloyd buys his comics. So Lloyd's been, I don't know why, but he's been entrusted with the map and has of course lost it. Well, your job is to explore the garden and round up all of Lloyd's friends and family to then find the Bug Hotel. So yeah, in the gardens here, it looks fantastic. There's just trails around the garden. You can come and meet sort of Lloyd, Abacus, and try and find them all. The whole of this group that Lloyd has somehow managed to lose in our gardens. <laughs> I've not managed to see the whole trail yet, but there's a, there's amazing sculptures on the trail, some amazing wings of butterflies that you can stand in front of for photos, and a really good Lloyd sculpture and a wicker apple. 
if you find Julia the spider at Wisley, there's a little maze to follow through to get to her. So yeah, there's absolutely amazing events going on for, throughout the gardens. And I, I really do love the sculptures. I think, I think my favorite is abacus, those little yeah, abacus. The, the metal abacuses <laughs> that are around. They looked amazing. We did get involved from the beginning, sort of where exactly to place the characters, where might they be visiting and want to be in the gardens, how might have they got lost, what might they be doing? So we've been involved from the beginning talking about facts and um, I mean it must be said much of it was already there in the series, all these facts and all the consultation that I know that the team did at Ardman talking to entomologists about what these insects really do in real life. It was already there and we just had to find the right places in the gardens where they might have got lost or where Lloyd can go and find his uh, friends and family. Yeah, and Lloyd of the Flies, we really, you know, even though it's you know, a comedy series where they're living in a sort of human-like home, you know, it was very much inspired by facts about the insect world and trying to find you know, all the stories and comedy, trying to root it in in facts about insects and, you know, from what they eat and the kind of other insects they might encounter. And so on the trail, we've, I think they've tried to find places where the species of each character might be found. And I learned some facts as well. I learned that, I think it was a fact I remember learning a while ago and forgotten, but flies taste with their feet, which is amazing. I mean, with Lloyd of the Flies, you know, a big influence on the series was just my love of insects and wanting to, you know, take the insect world and build a comedy around it. But what's been great about working with the RHS on this um, project is then taking the series and using it to hopefully inspire kids to learn more about insects and explore nature. And I think, I think actually, you know, they are learning about real insects, whether they like it or not, through just coming to the gardens, finding out where these, these animals live and, yeah, meeting them all. Thanks to Matt and Andy. The RHS Grand Bug and Pest Hotel Hunt will be up at our gardens through to the end of August. So head to our show notes to learn how the whole family can join in on the fun. Well, that's about it for today. I just want to remind you that we have an RHS podcast email address. It's simply podcast at rhs.org.uk. So send us your reactions to the stories as well as ideas for what you'd like to hear more of on the show. Once again, that's podcast at rhs.org.uk. And also, as always, if you've enjoyed listening today, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really helps us create the type of content that you want to hear. That's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. 
And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 